Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 6. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're at the right podcast. Today I'm talking about Season 6, Episode 12, Double Meat Palace, where Buffy gets a job and Willow struggles when Amy gives her magic as a gift. I am Lisa M. Lilly, mystery and thriller author and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. Along with a breakdown of Double Meat Palace, today I'll talk about evening the odds for the villain when your protagonist, like Buffy, is super strong. What to do when your antagonist doesn't come directly into conflict with your protagonist until the end of the story. Layered dialogue like Hallie's and Anya's that reads differently with every rewatch. When it's okay for someone else to save your hero. A subplot with strong, clear plot turns and a main plot without them. And finally, why realism matters most when you're writing fantasy or humor. As always, there will be no spoilers until the end when I talk about foreshadowing. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Double Meat Palace aired the first time on January 29, 2002. It was written by Jane Espenson and directed by Nick Mark. It starts with a bit less conflict than we usually see and a bit more backstory. Xander carries a bowl of popcorn into the summer's living room and talks with Willow and Anya about the geek trio. He remembers Warren and Jonathan, but not that other guy, a running season joke about how no one knows who Andrew is. Willow starts to explain why they can't find the geek trio. They thought they had an address. This deals with a question the audience must have from the last episode. Buffy and Willow did not try to go after the geek trio that night outside the arcade, but the audience must wonder why they didn't pursue them later. Anya, though, interrupts to ask where Buffy is and worry she'll be late for her first day. Willow protests at the interruption, and Anya says, please continue the story of failure. It is so Anya to phrase things that way and be not thoughtful about how Willow might feel. And it's funny because there is a failure. Uh, Buffy and Willow did not track down the trio. Willow, after explaining the trio having cleared out, says Buffy brought back books and plans and magical objects. And as she describes some of the objects, Willow is clearly excited about it. Xander and Anya give her a bit of a look and she shakes her head and starts talking about other things. This is a nice opening conflict for Willow, who has a strong subplot in the episode. It's subtle, but it shows that she is still fighting the draw of magic. Anya now says this is why demons are better than humans. When she was a vengeance demon, sure, she caused pain, but she did a full day's work and she got compensated for that work. Xander says, welcome to today's episode of Go Money Go. I hear it daily. And Willow says, with a mischievous gleam in her eye, right for the rest of your life. Xander looks really distraught at that idea. Anya ignores him and says supervillains want reward 
board without labor. They want things to come easy, and that's the problem. A country can't have progress without labor. Workers are tools that shape America. Buffy walks in on that line and says that's good to know. She's in a red and white striped uniform and a hat with a cow on it, and she adds that she was feeling like a tool, and now she knows why. She looks very sad, and we cut to credits. We return at 2 minutes 36 seconds, so the opening wasn't all that long, but it gives a strong clue to the episode, which is going to follow different storylines for the different characters. And we start with Buffy watching a training video. It's upbeat, almost manic in its narration. And it shows a cow and a chicken and how they get together. And when it gets to the harvesting, we cut to Buffy's face looking horrified as we hear moos and squawks. Manny, the manager, pops in and says, interesting, isn't it? And Buffy responds, oh, yes, like how the cow and the chicken come together, even though they've never met. It's like sleepless in Seattle if Meg and Tom were, like, minced. Manny asks why Buffy wants to work there, and Buffy responds honestly, saying she needed money quickly. She didn't want a lengthy interview process. As she sees Manny's disappointment, she segues into because she wanted to be part of the Double Me experience. At 4 minutes 26 seconds, Buffy meets some of her dead-eyed co-workers. This is probably the story spark or inciting incident because a co-worker asks Manny what happened to Catherine, and Manny says, you mean Emily, and adds that she's gone. Some eerie music plays while Buffy asks what happened, and the co-worker tells her whatever always happens. It is that first hint to Buffy that something is wrong and people disappear, though it's quite some time before as the audience, we see that that truly is a demonic problem. Manny gives Buffy a locker that still has someone else's things in it and observes there's lots of turnover. He also tells her to follow the two guys she just met. They are lifers. And if she puts in the work, in 10 years she'll be where he is and he taps his 10-year badge. In the kitchen, a zombie-like worker slices meat and Buffy herself gets sort of mesmerized by the even slices. She starts looking around. Manny pulls her back, telling her she doesn't need to go there. He gives her a double meat medley, which Buffy definitely doesn't want to eat, but he waits until she takes a big bite and talks about the secret ingredient. But when she asks what it is, he says only it's a meat process. One of the other guys, Gary, laughs at one of Buffy's jokes after Manny walks away, but he tells her she has to stop. Manny thinks that levity steals from the company. Here and throughout the episode, I have some questions about the fast food experience. My first real job was cashiering at a discount store. I was at a cash register interacting with usually disgruntled customers who were unhappy that uh, things they thought were on sale were not and so forth. And my friends said they had a blast behind the counter at McDonald's or even working at the grill. So I don't know if they just worked at a particularly fun and laid back McDonald's or if this picture of fast food is more 
accurate. I'm sure even at the time that the people who were working at the McDonald's and perhaps felt stuck there didn't find it to be as fun as high schoolers who were doing it for a summer. But my questions about the reality of this on first watch and later watches intruded for me. Because it's so exaggerated, it's meant to show that there might be something going on here to make Buffy think there might be something going on. But it also throughout feels to me a bit like the show making fun of people who need to work these kinds of jobs. And that for me interfered with enjoying the episode. And it goes to that idea that when you write supernatural or fantasy stories, the non-fantasy elements need to be even more believable or realistic because that's what makes us buy into the writer's world. They depict something that is real so accurately and we feel it so strongly that when the supernatural happens, we're also willing to go with that. At 7 minutes 56 seconds, a gray-haired woman customer orders and Buffy watches Gary as he presses the many, many buttons on the cash register. The woman tells Buffy she comes there every day, and she thinks Buffy might make it here, quote, not like some of them where suddenly you never see them again. I can see you there for a long time, end quote. And Buffy says, that's great. Clearly not too thrilled that the woman already thinks she might be a lifer. Buffy's first order is overwhelming for her as it's a customer who is rattling off what he wants for the whole family. She's trying to match the items with the pictures and she asks him if one of the buttons looks chocolatey. After a break, Buffy starts looking around and opens the walk-in freezer, but Manny appears to tell her she doesn't need to be in there. Buffy says she was just curious and he responds, curiosity killed the cat. Buffy to herself after he walks away says theory number five, cat burgers. Her friends appear later and Anya says, we're here to support your subsistence level employment. Bravo. Buffy starts telling them about the weirdness, noting that she waitressed before, but this is different. Willow is tapping straws on the counter and Buffy asks if she's okay much more tuned in now to her friend. At 11.05, Buffy talks about Manny being scary and mysterious, the secret ingredient, people staring into space and disappearing, though she concedes they don't disappear poof, as far as she knows. Her friends are doubtful, and Xander says, it's fast food. I have swum in these murky waters, my friend. There is assorted creepiness. There is staring. There is the enthusiastic not showing up at all. I think you're seeing demons where there's just life. And that is a bit believable. Xander has worked more of these kinds of jobs and also Buffy's a slayer. So she's apt to see everything as potentially supernatural. Xander orders Dawn's surprise when Anya says if Xander likes the food, maybe he should get it for their wedding reception. But Anya explains, after Willow gave us the whoosh engagement party, I got slack on the planning because I figured she'd help. But well, now that's all been blown to hell. Willow says, hey, standing right here, standing right exactly here. Anya says, sorry, didn't mean to tempt you. And she whispers to Dawn, everyone's so delicate. 
This further moves Willow's subplot along, showing how other people feel about her stopping and that they might not all be supportive. Anya talks about guests coming in from out of town and how many of her demon friends haven't RSVP'd yet, which feels at the time like filler, but foreshadows the appearance of her vengeance demon friend later. Buffy gives Xander his order, and she jokes that she cut way back on the cat, grossing Xander out. At 13 minutes, 8 seconds, it's night, it's very slow, and Buffy is about to take a second break, despite a spaced-out co-worker's comment that they're not allowed to. Buffy argues no one's there, but Spike appears at the register. Buffy tells him, I'm working, go away. And Spike says, yeah, and you chose to be in a customer service profession, and I'm a customer. Service me. Buffy says, order something or go. Spike calls her a demon. Buffy says she doesn't know why he can hit her, but she's not a demon. He asks if she took the job to prove something, that she's a normal girl with a normal job. She insists she's fine. And Spike, now acting concerned and seeming genuinely so, says, Buffy, you're not happy here. And Buffy answers, please don't make this harder. I would struggle less with feeling like the episode was looking down on people who take these kinds of jobs if it was more clear to me why Buffy is distraught. Almost no low-wage customer service job is fun. Almost no customer service job is genuinely fun. They're difficult. But Buffy's expression is more like she is embarrassed and demeaned to have this job. And Spike's comment, service me, adds to that, as does his next comment, though he is trying to be supportive when he says she's better than this. And she tells him she needs money. Spike tells her he can get money and tells her to get out and says, this place will kill you. It could be that Buffy feels it's demeaning, not because it's a fast food job, but because she's the slayer. She's a superhero. She is used to doing amazing things. So spending many hours a day on things that don't save the world and don't make use of her skills could feel pretty bad. So perhaps that is all that is about. I would have liked just a little bit more there that was explicit on that. Even if Spike said it, rather than you're better than this, if he said, you're a slayer, what are you going to do here? Slay the grills? Rather than what to me feels like subtext that it's demeaning for anyone to need to work a minimum wage job. On the line, this place will kill you. We cut to Gary. He's walking out into the alley to throw out the trash, and he hears sounds and asks if someone's there. And at 14 minutes, 53 seconds, Gary says, oh, as if he recognizes whoever it is. He asks what they're doing, and then he screams and is killed by something we don't see. And we cut to a commercial. So that is the first major plot turn in the episode. It does what it should coming from outside the protagonist. It spins the story in a new direction and it raises the stakes 
because now we know not just that Buffy is right, something is going on, though it might not be supernatural, but something evil, and humans are getting killed. The next day, Buffy's co-worker says he's surprised she came back. Manny tells her Gary didn't, and he's putting Buffy on the grill. He's been watching her. It seems like he's saying that to say she did a good job, but you could also read it as watching her because he's evil. Another co-worker shows her how to manage the grill. He's sweating as he does it, and he goes through a series of repetitive tasks to make sure the burger is the same each time, and Buffy says, repeat until insane. Buffy asks him about the secret ingredients. He says it's a meat process, and then that it's a process they do to the meat. And when she pushes more, he says it's just the name of the process. When she observes that they're going to get kind of greasy, he tells her about his skin, his hair, his nostrils, his eyelashes, inside his ears, all being coated with grease, and asks if she wants to look inside his ears. Buffy politely declines. I do remember one of my ex-boyfriends worked at a burger place for a while. He didn't tell me about grease in his ears, but he did talk about leaving, as will come up later, and smelling like the burgers and how that drove him crazy. Buffy dislikes the grill so much she's actually happy when Manny appears until he tells her she's working a double shift. Not only did Gary not show, but the grinder guy didn't appear for work. Buffy, not thrilled with a 16-hour workday, argues that they could show up. They could be anywhere. A co-worker slams down a giant package of beef and says, here's your meat. A foreshadowing that Buffy will find a finger from one of these guys later in the meat. Her dismay at the second shift is a nice moment of realism here. I remember that push-pull over. I could really use the money, and I don't think I can do this for another how many hours. At 18 minutes 33 seconds, Xander's on the couch. He hangs up the phone and calls out to Anya, who's in another room that Buffy called, and she's working late. A veiny demon suddenly appears and threatens to tear him apart, but Anya enters and says, Halfrick? And Halfrick's voice changes completely. It sounds human. They hug and laugh. Anya explains she called to invite Hallie to the wedding, not for vengeance. Xander makes a quick exit, and Hallie apologizes she might have got the message garbled. And she jokes, oh, half the time she's not sure she's maiming the right man. Then she turns serious and asks if Anya's marrying that man with the large upper arms. Anya says she is, and Hallie says, why? Anya responds, well, because I love him. And Hallie says, hmm. Anya says, they'll be very happy. And Hallie says, hmm, again. I have a comment from Roberta Lip on Twitter about last episode, Gone, where Buffy turned invisible and 
what I said about the humor in the episode and that it didn't, for the most part, work for me. And Roberta says, because it wasn't funny. The fashion victim joke wasn't funny. Stealing somebody's hat isn't funny. Torturing that social worker wasn't funny. Had they played it straight and shown that Buffy felt desperate about Dawn, then having that woman fired could have been excusable. That last point is something I didn't think about. How might the episode have played if we saw Buffy doing those things to Doris, not to be funny, but because she is really desperate, which she is, but that doesn't really come through because it's all played for humor. That made me think more about what makes humor work, and a lot of what makes it work is both genuine emotion and truth. So if we buy the situation, we buy the character's feelings, and it feels authentic to the character, it is funnier. And as an example, Buffy's taking that woman's hat and talking about fashion crimes didn't strike me as funny, partly because we have not seen Buffy critique other people's outfits. Buffy is very stylish. She clearly likes clothes and boots and shoes, but we've not seen her be critical like that. The character who has been that way is Cordelia, and had Cordelia done that, I would have found it really funny because, yeah, of course, if Cordelia turned invisible, the Cordelia that we know from three seasons of Buffy, the first thing she might well have done is go right all the fashion wrongs in the world, which would genuinely offend her. And she would feel justified because it's a terrible thing to wear a hat like that. And then it would be funny. Roberta had also made a comment. She, like me, didn't find the scene with Invisible Buffy, Spike, and Xander funny. And I buy that Buffy is much more up for sexcapades with Spike when she's sure no one will know that she is in Spike's crypt. No one will see her there. But then that completely doesn't work with her nibbling on Spike's ear and making it somewhat obvious that she's there despite that Xander knows she turned invisible. So she's banking on no way will Xander put two and two together and he does but I don't buy that Buffy would take that chance. Thank you, Roberta, as always, for insightful comments. At 20 minutes, 28 seconds, Spike lurks outside the Double Meat Palace at night as Buffy's about to go on break. She catches sight of him, and the scene cuts at 20 minutes, 36 seconds to sex with Spike in the alley against the wall beneath a teamwork poster. This is nearing the midpoint of the episode. I'm not sure, as I'll talk about further, that we see a very strong midpoint commitment or midpoint reversal by Buffy or for Buffy in this episode. Those are two things that usually make an episode work really well when you see a protagonist fully commit to the quest, throw caution to the wind, or suffer a major reversal. It keeps a story gripping, it keeps it moving forward. You could see this either way for 
Buffy. It could be a commitment in that she is risking being seen. It could be a reversal because Buffy's face looks sad to me. She looks depressed and almost as if she wishes she could be anywhere but there. I am not certain though that I saw that the first time I watched the episode in her face. I remember listening to another podcast where they called that out and then once they did on every rewatch that is all I saw. At 20 minutes 50 seconds Amy stops at the Summers house. In Willow's room she asks Willow if Dawn is mad at her too and what did Willow tell her about Amy. Willow, who's very shaky, just asks if Amy wants something. Amy hesitantly says she'd like to take the cage. It was her home for a while. Amy then sits on the bed with Willow, who is highlighting a textbook, and asks about, quote, the whole cold turkey thing, end quote. Willow claims it's good, but talks about how frustrating it is doing things the slow way. But she adds that she's getting her focus back. Amy says she can see that and nods to the textbook where Willow has highlighted nearly the entire page and Willow defensively claims it's a pivotal page. That part I identify with. I remember doing that with some pages in my casebooks in law school and I did not have recovery from a magic addiction as an excuse. Amy asks if this is going to be Willow's life from now on, never doing magic again ever, never feeling how it may Made her feel. That is so, from what I understand, the last thing you want to say to someone who is trying to stay sober. The whole idea is to just take care of yourself now, to make a choice now to stay sober or to find other habits that you can put in place, but not to think about, oh my God, this is going to be forever. And you can see in Willow's face how much harder it makes everything for her because she says she doesn't think that's the way to look at it, but she is clearly distraught. As I say this, I'm also thinking that there is a certain parallel here to Buffy's comments, repeat until insane, to Buffy seeming very depressed because it seems like she is looking at Double Meat Palace, partly because everyone keeps talking about lifers, as a place she will never get out of. She does not see any way this will change. And for both her and Willow, there is that sense of, oh my God, can I do this forever. Amy now makes things so much worse and says, hey, Will, it's your birthday. Willow says it's not, but Amy does a quick spell. Willow's hands spark and her eyes go black. And at 23 minutes, 12 seconds, Amy says, it's a gift. It's magic. And it didn't come from you. It came from me. Completely legal. Enjoy. Such an interesting insight into Amy. It seems like She may believe that Willow has decided to stop magic because of pressure from other people, because some sort of rule that others set up that she can't do it. So Amy is saying, hey, that's that's fine. Like, you're not breaking the rules. Here you go. It is a present. This is a strong reversal for Willow. And that is part of what makes her subplot so strong. So subplots 
can have all the same major plot turns that I talk about, but often because they are typically shorter stories within a larger one, they will not have all the plot points. A really good subplot, though, has at least that story spark or inciting incident, because any story needs that, a strong midpoint and a climax where everything resolves. And then in between, there will be additional obstacles or escalating conflict. The other thing is while you might skip a plot turn or two, they should generally happen in the order that you see in most stories. Now we go back to Buffy and at 23 minutes 38 seconds she stares at the meat grinder watching the meat come out and she spots a finger. This could serve as a reversal for Buffy in the main plot. I mentioned the spike issue, but it's hard to see that as a reversal in the main plot, even if Buffy is looking depressed because it it doesn't relate directly to the double meat palace or to people disappearing. The challenge with her finding this finger as a reversal is it isn't really personal to Buffy. There isn't anything she could have done to stop it. She didn't even know for sure that anything was wrong and everything around her was pointing to the idea that no, she is just having trouble with working in this environment. It is a bad thing to happen. It does turn the plot because now she will try to find out how this happened and why, but it's not so much a personal reversal. She confronts Manny. He talks about an accident six weeks ago, a grinder incident. Buffy points out this is new as that finger looks pretty recently alive and Manny says, well, maybe Gary came in and he had an accident and got himself to the hospital. And Buffy tells him maybe Gary is in the meat grinder. Maybe he's the meat process, the secret ingredient. Going back to this issue of needing truth for humor to work and supernatural to work, I struggle with that Manny isn't more shocked. If he's in on all this, he ought to at least pretend he's shocked. And if he's not, he would be shocked. There is a finger in the meat grinder. And while I don't know if I thought about that on first watch, I'm sure it added to my just not getting into this episode. Now Buffy does do a sort of throw caution to the wind because she races out into the dining room at 24 minutes, 38 seconds, batting the food out of people's hands and yelling at them to stop eating. And she says, it's people. The double meat medley is people. And then she adds, well, there could be some chicken. And an old lady says, what about the cherry pie? And we cut to commercial. Like the sort of reversal of finding the finger, despite that this is a big thing for Buffy to do and it will get her fired, it also doesn't feel like a huge commitment because what else would Buffy do? No way is she going to let people eat the food that could be humans. In addition, the restaurant should not be letting people eat 
the food. Yeah, I'm sure they don't want a worker to go out and yell that there are people in it. The thing to do would be to come out and somehow find a way to stop people from eating and send them away and close down and figure out what happened without alarming everyone. But the fact that it would need to shut down and that there's no way Buffy as the Slayer would let this go on undermines the idea of it as a genuine commitment and it doesn't really drive the rest of the story everything Buffy does after it she would do whether or not she had this outburst it is a fun reference to Charlton Heston at the end of the movie Soylent Green Manny is appalled at Buffy's behavior he thought she was a team player he and co-workers try to restrain Buffy and Manny fires her we cut to Halfrick and Anya, and Halfrick says, tell me more about Xander. And Anya says, you keep asking about him. Do you think I'm making a mistake? And Hallie says, do you? Anya says, well, no. Xander, he, he's very brave. He's very kind and brave. And he has the sweetest smile and the nicest body. And he loves me. I mean, sometimes it isn't easy, but he does. And Hallie says, who told you that it isn't easy to love you? Anya says, well, uh, you know, I'll do something or say something. And then he has to say stuff like, it's incorrect for you to appreciate money so much. Or observe, here's how a real human would behave. Hallie responds, oh, so he corrects you. When Anya says she's getting confused and asks if Hallie thinks there's something wrong with how Xander treats her, Hallie again says, do you? And she claims she's just curious. Anya doesn't have to say more if she's not comfortable. I love this exchange and the previous one because you can read it so many ways. On first watch, because Xander is one of our core characters and because we've seen Anya transitioning to being human and there are times that she probably can use some guidance in, hey, this is a human perspective or just saying this or that outright is going to hurt people's feelings because she doesn't seem to understand that and she doesn't seem to want to hurt people's feelings. Xander saying those kinds of things to her doesn't seem that terrible. And we see Xander as really loving Anya. At the very least, he told us he did back in the previous season when he was urging Buffy to run after Riley. We saw him go home and declare his love to Anya, and he seemed sincere. So on first watch, I was inclined to feel like Hallie was being annoying, and she is so passive-aggressive and manipulative in the way she approaches this that it felt like, oh, she is undermining her friend. She just doesn't think people can be happy as a couple, and she's creating all these doubts for Anya. But on rewatches, I thought about it, and I thought about how sad it is that Anya feels like she isn't easy to love. And you can completely see how she would feel that way. And I've been much more aware on rewatches of some of Xander's comments to her and the ways he treats her, which I often saw as 
funny, but that kind of funny that also pokes and pokes and pokes at someone and is really a criticism. So in that sense, here's Hallie pointing that out. Like you're marrying someone who makes you feel kind of like he's doing you a favor by loving you or he's overcoming some big obstacle to love you. You should have someone who thinks you're awesome. And and that is such a strength for a writer to be able to do that. And I think what it takes is really putting yourself as a writer into each character's point of view and seeing things from that perspective and understanding that both things can be true. Hallie can be bringing out some things that Anya needs to consider and she also can be doing it in a far less than ideal way by being passive aggressive rather than stating her concerns. The scene cuts to the magic box. Buffy calls an emergency meeting. She plops down a burger on the table. Only Dawn and Xander are there. Dawn says she knocked on Willow's door but got no answer. Buffy tells them there's something wrong with the double meat palace. Dawn asks her if the reason Buffy smells bad is she's been demon fighting. Buffy realizes it's from the grill. She shows Dawn the finger and says it might be Gary. They need to analyze the burger and see if it used to be people. Xander's been sitting at the table all this time eating and he turns around his mouth full to say what? Buffy's upset that he ate the burger. And Xander says, well, first she claims it's a cat, then she acts like it's a joke, now it's human flesh. Buffy is more worried because she's got to go get another burger to analyze, and Xander says, that's your problem in this scenario? Willow now rushes in, she's shaky, her eyes are black, and she apologizes, claiming she got caught up in reading for school, and then says, well, highlighting anyway. And the pencil bends as she picks it up. Buffy is focused on the double meat palace and guesses that all of them are in on it, and it's a great scheme. Everyone expects high turnover. They get the human meat for nothing, and the customers dispose of the bodies by eating them. Willow says she'll try to analyze the bits of meat left on the wrapper. This is a nice moment of escalating conflict for Willow because, as with other things, it is going to take her much longer to do it without magic. Dawn notices how shaky Willow is and asks if she's okay. This is a nice tiny bit of growth in their relationship because Dawn has moved from being so angry at Willow that she can barely talk to her to being concerned about Willow again. Willow claims she's just worried about Buffy who could be walking into anything. The scene cuts to Buffy at the Double Meat Palace in the dark. She hears something and calls out Manny's name. At 30 minutes, 26 seconds, she trips over something off screen, then stands holding a foot and lower leg that have been bitten off or sawed off. And the foot has a saddle shoe on it, which Manny was shown wearing earlier. Buffy says, I guess you really were a lifer. The scene cuts to the magic shop and Willow is saying to herself as she works very quietly, I don't need magic. I don't need it. Don't need it. 
Xander and Don talk over to one side, and Don says, my friend Janice, her sister's a lawyer. Xander says, you think I should sue over the burger? That's interesting. Don responds, no, I just mean Buffy's never going to be a lawyer or a doctor, anything big. Xander says, she's a slayer. She saves the whole world. That's way bigger. And Don answers, but that means she's going to have, like, crap jobs her entire life, right? Minimum wage stuff. I mean, I could still grow up to be anything, but for her... This is it. Maybe this explains why Buffy is so depressed, why she is seeing the job the way she does, because she is looking ahead and that's what she sees. I'll talk more about this in the patron bonus episode on Buffy working, but I do struggle a bit with whether the show has justified that belief on Dawn's part or Buffy's part that it is easier for Buffy to work a minimum wage shift job and be a slayer than it would be to have some other kind of work. For now, Willow says she thinks she's got something. Xander asks if she's using potions. And at 31 minutes, 33 seconds, Willow says, no, no potions. It's not magic. It's chemistry. You can tell by how damn slow it is. She explains that the solution helps her look for proteins in human blood. Anya enters. Xander asks if Helfrich left and says, so on, the way she looked, with the face, that wasn't what you used to look like, was it? And Anya says, is there something wrong with that? I mean, did you think she was unattractive? Xander responds, okay, is there any answer to that question that won't make you nuts? I love these lines. They are so true to relationships where one person doesn't know the source of the other's pointed comment and where there isn't any good answer because the issue isn't really about the question. Anya tells Xander he's not perfect. He has strangely large upper arms and the tendency to criticize. Now I have excerpts from patron Raven Dark author who commented on YouTube. Raven Dark has been catching up and I'm highlighting these comments because while they are from season four, the Yoko factor, they also relate to some of my questions this season about why Buffy is as disturbed as she is about her attraction to Spike and why she is almost petrified that her friends will find out. Raven Dark author says, regarding Buffy not telling Riley that sex with her is the trigger for the curse, you could be right that she didn't tell him because she didn't fully trust that Riley isn't totally out of his black and white initiative thinking. But I see it as something a little more complex and a product of the times. It's very common for women to be told that telling a current boyfriend about sex with an ex is a no-no. A friend of mine used to tell me that if I did talk to a guy about a past sexual relationship, he wouldn't want me anymore. I don't think Buffy went so far as to think Riley would cast her aside, but I do think her silence with regards to that aspect of her and Angel's relationship goes back to the whole habit society has of slut-shaming. Her not telling Riley may have little to do with not trusting him personally, so much as it does socially programmed fear that goes beyond anything specifically toward him. These are really good points. 
I was idealistically imagining that a lot of that had changed from when I was in the college in the 80s to the time Buffy was made in the late 90s. But the more I think about it, the more I know even from personal experience, I realize it didn't. If you would like to see all of Raven Dark's comments, which are super insightful, check out the episode on YouTube and check out previous season four episodes where you can also see comments. And of course, feel free to comment yourself there or on Twitter or the Buffy and the Artist Story Facebook page or to email me at buffystorypod at gmail.com. Willow interrupts to say there's no reaction, it's not human. Anya asks if it's demon meat and says she's opposed to using demon meat no matter how much money it saves, and does that surprise Xander? Willow is puzzled about what she's seeing in the microscope. There is something weird. At 33 minutes 14 seconds, Buffy sees a gray-haired wig lying on a counter and says, Scalp? Wig? Wig lady? First time I watched the episode, I had no idea what she was talking about. I didn't remember the older lady from before, and I hadn't even noticed that it was the same lady who talked to Buffy at the counter who later asked about the cherry pie. We also never heard anyone call her wig lady, though it fits Buffy's way of talking about people. It would help if we had a sense that she noticed wig lady enough to give her a nickname. Right around here, normally we would see the last major plot turn. That should grow out of the midpoint commitment or reversal and spin the story in another new direction and sometimes raise the stakes. You could see Buffy finding Manny's foot as doing that. It is outside Buffy, but it doesn't really take the story in a new direction because she already found a finger. And she had a few suspicions of Manny, but that wasn't driving anything that she did. So it doesn't turn the story. Willow finding something weird could have been a major turn, except we don't know what it is yet. And that too doesn't drive the story other than that Willow comes to Double Meat Palace as we'll see. So I take it back, perhaps that's the turn because that sends Willow to go after Buffy. It doesn't feel like a major turn though because while it is why Willow is there to help, it doesn't propel anything in the main plot between the moment Willow learns that and the moment she helps defeat the monster. So all that's left is the next moment when the wig lady turns out to be there and she says, oh dear, wig lady, is that what they call me? She is bald and she advances toward Buffy and says, I don't care for that. I mean, I have to do something to hide this. And at 33 minutes, 48 seconds, a sneaky demon thing springs out of her head definitely spins the story. Now Buffy has a direct antagonist to fight. So why am I making such a big deal about this? It's pretty clear that's the turn. And I wanted to isolate it because one of my issues with the episode is we go immediately from that to the final confrontation between the two of them. That same moment when the snaky demon 
springs out begins the climax, which is the final confrontation between the antagonist and protagonist that resolves toward the end of the episode. Normally, you would have a fair amount of time between the two where things escalate. Instead, here, it's as if we're in this very long climax. The snaky demon sprays toxin. Buffy struggles to kick, but she can't lift her leg very far, and the wig lady explains she sprayed a paralyzing agent. Buffy won't be able to move much, so don't try. That wrinkle is a great way to even the odds here because otherwise Buffy, who is super strong, could pretty easily fight off this demon. We have seen her kill snake demons before. It also avoids the visuals of Buffy fighting an old lady who, though she has this snake demon, still herself looks a little vulnerable. And if we saw Buffy kicking her in the face, for instance, it isn't really the image that we want for our hero, though Buffy would be perfectly justified. Wig Lady, as the antagonist, illustrates a challenge that is part of a lot of mysteries where you have a detective following the clues. If you're in the detective's hat alone, your protagonist rarely is coming directly into conflict with the antagonist because the antagonist is trying to stay out of the way, is trying to hide what they did. So you need other ways for the antagonist to push against the protagonist and you need other sources of conflict. So one way to do that is to have other characters who push against the protagonist until you get further down the road when you get to the climax. It works best if at least some of those other characters knowingly or unknowingly are working on behalf of the antagonist. But you might also have friends pushing against the protagonist. And there is a bit of that here where Xander pushes back and says, hey, you're, you're seeing things that you think are supernatural and it's just life. You have Spike saying, what are you doing in this job? You shouldn't be here. You have co-workers who believe that, well, everyone disappears. There's nothing going on. But part of why the episode lacks power is none of them is super active in pushing against Buffy and none of them are in league with Wig Lady as far as we know. And there's no point where the story suggests that Wig Lady before this was doing anything directly against Buffy. Also, Buffy wasn't actively investigating a mystery until the middle of the episode episode. She was just sensing general weirdness. She was asking about the secret ingredient, but it was not clear that she even was convinced that anything was going on. All of that robs some of the power from the episode. As Buffy struggles, the wig lady tells Buffy the paralysis spreads upward. Soon Buffy won't be able to use her arms. So this is a good way to explain why Buffy, though she is partly paralyzed, is still able to use her hands and her arms to crawl away. The lady says that she loves the paralysis because it means she can eat slowly. This is a nice way to explain why she drags out the fight because otherwise once Buffy is partially paralyzed, it would be pretty easy for her to just kill Buffy. A last point on Buffy's paralysis 
It made me think about Helpless in season three, where the Watcher's Council had Giles drug Buffy so that she was no longer strong and locked her in that house with that vampire, supposedly because it was a test so that the Slayer would learn to use her ingenuity and her other skills to defeat a foe, not only her strength. Lots of other issues there with whether the Watcher's Council was also trying to get rid of Slayers as they got old enough to start challenging the council. This scene suggests not that that test was okay or justified, because I don't think you can justify it, but that the idea behind it, that at least some of the Watchers may have hit on something that was important, that Slayers needed to be able to think and use their wits and be creative, not only physically strong. They just needed to find a better way to develop that not by deceiving the Slayer and throwing her into something without her consent. Now Buffy hears Willow, who is talking to her through the drive through speaker. She tells Buffy there is no meat in the double meat medley. It is all processed vegetables. And she shares with Buffy how Amy gave her the magic, and it wasn't her choice, but she feels bad about it. And now that it's gone away, she feels like she needs it. The scene cuts back and forth between her outside and Buffy inside, trying to fight off the demon as it drags her out from her hiding place. Willow rushes in as the demon bites Buffy's shoulder. These next moments can be seen as a climax for the subplot if we see that plot as Willow versus herself, Willow versus her addiction, rather than Willow versus Amy, which I'll talk about in a bit. This is a literal do or die moment for Willow. She's already said she so needs the magic. She feels like it's hard to resist it. And now her friend's life is in danger. Another reason that paralyzing agent is so important because Buffy genuinely could get killed here and Willow could easily stop that using magic. At 36 minutes, 37 seconds, Willow chops off the snake. So she doesn't use any magic. She prevails over the addiction. Buffy falls. The snake demon falls near her. It is still alive and squealing and snapping, and Buffy stabs it to death. Willow puts it in the meat grinder, adding to the sense of Willow's victory. This is a rare time when someone else saves Buffy. Normally, you want your hero to always save herself. I'm especially concerned about that room writing women protagonists because of the many, many years of tropes of the male hero coming in to save the woman or the boyfriend coming in to save the woman, even if she is the protagonist. But it works here. For one thing, in the series, Buffy almost always saves the day, so it leaves room for other characters to sometimes be the ones who save it or who significantly help. Two here, Willow is on Buffy's team. Buffy is the one who brought her the burger to analyze. Buffy is the reason that Willow came there. So it is still partly Buffy's victory. Buffy fought as hard as she could, given her limits due to the paralysis. 
and Buffy strikes the very last blow. The scene now shifts. We're in the falling action part of the episode. This is where the writers tie up loose ends and resolve any subplots that aren't already resolved. So the Willow versus addiction conflict or subplot, however you see it, resolved. But now Amy comes to the house. So if we see that subplot as really being one between Willow and Amy, with Amy as the antagonist, at 37 minutes 20 seconds, this would be the climax. And I tend to feel like that is the key subplot here and that that moment when Willow overcame using magic and fought without it was one of many obstacles she overcame that brought her to this climax. Why? Because in previous episodes where Willow struggled with magic, there wasn't a specific antagonist against her. But here, Amy did this deliberate thing to give Willow magic. Amy tells Willow she wants to borrow a few things. She got a new place, but Willow won't let her in and says she can't spend time with Amy anymore. Amy asks if she didn't like her birthday present, seeming truly surprised. Willow insists she didn't and Amy doesn't buy it and says, you're telling me that you didn't have a genuine blast? Come on, that was a sweet spell. It was like a trip to Disneyland without the lines. Willow gets angry and tells Amy what she did was wrong. She made everything so much harder. Amy smiles and points out that Willow is not denying that she had fun. This to me is the first hint that Amy either did this purposely to make things harder or she is angry at Willow. She has something against Willow because she seems almost pleased at Willow's distress. Willow says, shut up. And Amy responds, oh yeah, sharp argument you got there. Were you on the debate team? I forget. I forgot a lot while you were failing to make me not a rat. Amy is forgetting she turned herself into a rat, but maybe seeing how powerful Willow is, she is angry that Willow didn't change her back sooner. She didn't see the times Willow tried, and she may feel Willow just forgot about her. Willow now says, Amy, if you really are my friend, you better stay away from me. And if you really aren't, you better stay away from me. Amy leaves. The other character drama we had is not revisited, that of Anya and Xander. It is more of a season arc, and it raised great story questions to keep the audience coming back about what will happen with that tension. Buffy returns her uniform, giving it to the new manager, Lorraine. Unlike Manny, Lorraine is not a caricature. She asks if Buffy heard about Manny just disappearing. She also comments that she heard about Buffy's big scene, and Buffy says she gets now that practical jokes are not right for the workplace. As she's leaving, though, Buffy pauses and asks about the double meat medley being vegetables. Lorraine tells her to close the door and sit down and says the medley is blended with beef fat for flavor. And Buffy says the secret ingredient in the beef is beef. Buffy tells Lorraine she understands that she can't spread this around, but then says it's a valuable secret. And Lorraine asks if she wants something. And Buffy says, I need money. And Lorraine responds, you want money? Buffy is 
super embarrassed at the idea that she was trying to blackmail the company. She explains she wants to work. She has zero money. She finishes with, uh, I, I'd really like to not be fired anymore. She promises no more practical jokes. And Lorraine says she's shorthanded and Buffy's already trained. So she will hire her back. She adds that she doesn't like short timers. She likes people who want to be there. And she taps her five-year pin like Manny tapped his 10-year, tells Buffy to shoot for this from here on out. And Buffy, sounding depressed, says, right, here on out. And we go to credits at 41 minutes, 36 seconds. This was one of the shortest episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And that is it for my breakdown of it, other than foreshadowing. If you are enjoying the podcast and find it helpful, please write a review wherever you listen to podcasts or rate it. That is a huge part of how new listeners find the show. If you're not staying around for foreshadowing, which includes spoilers, thank you so much for listening. Come back in two weeks for episode 13 of season six, Dead Things, where Warren's ex-girlfriend Katrina returns and the trio tries to blame a crime on Buffy. We are back for foreshadowing, which includes spoilers. Lots of foreshadowing of Xander leaving Anya at the altar. Mainly Xander's look when Willow says, for the rest of your life, after his comment about Anya's money lecture. But the whole exchange with Hallie and then Anya's irritation with Xander after has such a huge effect on that moment when Xander leaves her or that whole episode. Not so much foreshadowing, but it it makes it so much worse because here we see Anya is struggling with some questions that Hallie raised about how Xander treats her. So when she gets past that and makes that choice to be with Xander, to marry Xander, it is so much more heartbreaking when he leaves her. Spike insisting Buffy is a demon foreshadows a few things. He is dehumanizing her, and I question whether it makes it easier for him to sexually assault her later in the season, much as Soldiers can be taught to do that in war, to not see the enemy as fully human. Buffy's response, though she insists she's not a demon, shows how much it worries her and how much she doesn't feel right or like herself. And in the next episode, she will ask Tara to look at the spell that brought her back. She will wonder if she is behaving differently and feeling so differently because something went wrong with it. Frick appearing here as Vengeance Demon foreshadows older and far away where she will trap everyone in the house on Buffy's birthday as Vengeance for Dawn. I love that she appears here in the way it's handled because there's nothing to tell us she's more than a one-off character. She seems to be there for humor. She seems to be there just to raise those doubts about Xander and create that conflict. And then it turns out that she is going to play a much bigger role for all our characters. 
Amy turning on Willow for Shadows, the season seven episode where she casts that spell on Willow that leads to Willow turning into Warren. Anya's complaints about Willow not being able to do magic to help with the wedding show that Anya resents Willow not doing magic anymore, perhaps judging her for not being able to handle it or not figuring out how to handle it. And that returns in older and far away when Anya is frightened and they're all trapped in the house and in great danger. And she resents Willow. She is very angry that Willow won't use magic to get them out of it. And of course, the whole Willow subplot for Shadows, how hard that situation is for Willow and makes her victory in that her choice to not use magic even greater that is it for foreshadowing and spoilers thank you again for listening come back in two weeks for dead things where the trio attacks warren's old girlfriend and buffy almost confesses to murder you can find back episodes of the podcast on youtube or at lisalily.com where you can also find my mysteries and thrillers and the Buffy and the Art of Story books. If you'd like to connect or share your thoughts about Buffy, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Lisa M. Lily. That's L-I-S-A-M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2023. All rights reserved.